Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I am your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so excited to welcome Annie Canole to read from her new book, The Spring. And after that, she will be in conversation with Yumi Sakugawa. Before I introduce them, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing with a limited capacity. We are open from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. Masks and social distancing are required, and we ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit. We are also offering online ordering through our beautiful, newly designed website, which you could find at www.skylightbooks.com. And now to introduce you to the wonderful humans whose conversation we're about to enjoy. Annie Canole is a writer living in Joshua Tree, California. She was born and raised in the Rocky Highlands of Helena, Montana. Annie received a BA from the New School where she studied art and philosophy and an MFA in creative writing from the University of California, Riverside, Palm Desert. Her work has appeared in literary journals, including The Rumpus. She'll be in conversation with Yumi Sakugawa, a second generation Japanese Okinawan American interdisciplinary artist and the author of several published books, including I Think I Am in Friend Love with You, Your Illustrated Guide to Becoming One with the Universe, and The Little Book of Life Hacks. She has also been published in The New Yorker, The Rumpus, Bitch, BuzzFeed, The Best American Non-Required Reading 2014, Dum Dum Zine, and many other publications. And she has exhibited multimedia works at the Japanese American National Museum, Peabody Essex Museum, and the Smithsonian Arts and Industries Building. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Welcome, Annie and Yumi. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks. We're so excited to be here. So I thought that I would read a little brief description of the spring, and then Annie can read us a little passage before you two get started. Traversing the wild landscapes of the American West, prose and photography combine to create a lucid, dreamlike vision of visitations and allegorical animal encounters with snake, owl, and dragonfly, among others. The spring tells a stirring, elegic tale of death, love, rebirth, grief, and transformation. Thank you. Well, I'll start um, near the beginning of the book and read a few passages. Snake. A campfire glows as the sun begins its descent over a rocky shore of the upper Missouri River. 
flanked on each side by cottonwood trees and lofty white bluffs, the river runs strong and deep. One of the little boys in our camp is walking to his tent when he spots snake watching from behind the march grass. Snake's rattle twitches like a warning bell. Hearing the boy cry out, snake, his father emerges from the tent with a gun. As he looks for snake, we, a family around a fire, hold our breath. The boy's father steps forward, pointing the gun at the ground. We know you, Snake. A child sees you. We imagine your tail like a rattle, casting your fever dreams into our legs, taking hold, taking us into the underworld, into ancient time where you've lived with the mussel shells since the earth was young. You, Snake, have always been here, keeping time, casting your line through the turning of each eon. We tighten our limbs for fear of madness. We forget our tongues and lose our words. We lose our sight. We imagine clacking and clamoring and surrendering to your spell. Put the firelight out. Call in the river to take us home. Deer and lion. With the fire gone to ash and snake on my mind, I enter my tent and sit in the empty space between thin walls. The painter is usually here taking off his boots, but today he is picking morels in another land. My ears tune to every rustle in the grass. Snake is out beyond the cottonwoods gliding around the rocks. Her promise keeps me from sleep. High-pitched cry erupts, echoing like a symphony in the wind. It's the cry of lion reverberating as a hiss scream going toe to toe with deer. Wow. Chur. Wow. Dear, you do not fight. Your huff is quiet and determined. Giving, 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 and releasing to the sky. Frog. A few days later, I suggest to the painter that we swap animal stories over dinner. I tell him of the cat cry chorus. I heard the sound of death, I say. It was like no other. The sky opened. They let me in. He tells me the story of Frog. Walking out the door of the mountain house, the painter spotted Frog sitting on the front porch, skin growing taut under the bright high altitude sun. How he got there, I don't know, the painter says. There's no water for him near the house. Seeing Frog was barely able to breathe, the painter took him in his hands and carried him down the hill to the end of the road where a spring bubbled up from the ground. Gently, the painter released Frog into the spring to be renewed in the waters from which he had come. Captain Horse. What would we be if we were farm animals? I ask the painter as we drive past green pastures on a clear day. You would be cat and I would be horse. I would watch over you and your kittens. We would play together side by side. Yes, cat and horse, that is what we would be. Owl. The painter tells me of looking up from the trail along the river road and spotting two baby owls. Their through the trees, their unshifting goldenrod eyes cast a long stare into his heart. Two baby owls. What does it mean, he asks. Two. 
The first time we meet Owl, we are on a hike near the Saint Painter's sacred place, White Sulphur Springs. Owl appears like a magician out of the forest, flying overhead with mouse in its talons. We halt, frozen, Owl's luminous yellow eyes seizing us. Days later, unable to shake the gaze, we ask our friend what Owl means. Death, she says. The spring. Days after releasing Frog, the painter jumps into the spring on a full moon night. I never see his face again, except in dreams. He becomes light. Swan, the light is blinding. I know nothing of the nature of this spring, but it becomes a well in my heart erupting from my body in tearful heaves. I fear sleep because I fear one more day waking to this story. The painter visits me while I sleep. We sit across from one another at the table. He wears a white long sleeve t-shirt and his face is covered in white clown grease paint. Can't you undo, I ask. Silent, he stares at me with a deep knowingness, then look down, looks down in remorse and shakes his head, no. So I find two white swans. They are porcelain and fit in the palm of my hand. I buy them to keep us together and place them at the edge of the creek outside the house where I mourn. Thank you. Thank you, Annie, for your beautiful reading. Um, I, well, to give our listeners a little bit of context for how we know each other, which, which I think is worth bringing up. So Annie and I, we actually met in the desert in 29 Palms uh, near Joshua Tree in Southern California. And we were both in attendance at the Golden Dome School, which is a witchy artist residency that is about the intersection of magic, activism, art, ritual, community, witchiness. <laughs> and um, and I, and having known you for several years at this point, knowing you as an artist, a friend, a fellow creative, I was just so struck by the, the nuance, the rhythm, the poetry of this mythic, mythic memoir, as you call it, the stories that you tell. And something that really drew me in from the very beginning is this unusual structure because um, though it's called a memoir, it's, it's certainly a far more poetic, episodic, and instead of telling this really straightforward story that I think many of us would expect around grief and loss and healing, it's, it's much more liminal, not linear, and dips in and out of the dream world, the waking world, life and death, waking and reality. So I, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on 
how you settled into this form, this way, why this way, and also including photographs, uh, photographs you took of animals in nature. So I'm curious about all the creative decisions that led you to distilling the spring into its current form. Yeah, thank you, Yumi. <clears throat> um, so this, I began writing this story um, because I started to have a lot of interactions with animals, both before and after um, my former partner, Devin Leonardi, uh, passed. And I felt that the animals were, were telling me a story, that they were conveying um, some truth about everything that had happened. And I think that oftentimes when you lose somebody young, somebody in a tragic way, you're really searching for meaning. And after enough um, interactions with animals that felt very mystical um, began to happen, I started to want to record them so that I could start to track um, the tale that they, were, that they were telling. So in a way, I started to become a witness to them and documenting them both in writing as well as in, in the photographs I was taking. And um, my desire really was to understand um, their story, to find meaning. And also right before he passed, I had a dream where a voice told me that I had to tell myself a fable. And I could never shake the memory of that dream. And I think pretty, pretty about six months later, I realized that the animals were telling me the fable. And so uh, as this started to unfold, I, I only wrote things that were part of an animal story, hoping that the, the fable would start to reveal itself by tracking these animal stories. And over the course of about three years, it did um, it did end up becoming becoming the book that it is now. So in many ways, the story uh, was not following a specific kind of logic other than the ones that the animals presented to me. And that was very magical. I mean, there were times when I had to wait a year for another element of the story to literally happen. Um, but it was such a gift and I was always astonished. And I felt like in some ways the animals and I were co-creating this story, both through real life encounters as well as dreams. What I love about the focus just on animal encounters in reading this book is that your story of grief and loss and being among the living after such an abrupt death. I love that this story is distilled um, like a flower essence where I, I just feel like all the extraneous details and parts were boiled off. Um, so for example, there are so many things that as a reader, I don't know, um, but I don't 
feel that I'm missing it. So for example, I don't know how you and the painter met. I don't know even the painter's name or what his paintings are like. And I feel like in maybe a more conventional memoir narrative, you would sort of get a lot of descriptive anecdotes and, and details and incidents that's more grounded in human realities such as, oh, the emails I got, or um, I don't know, sort of the minutia of modern life. But because it's still distilled into animal encounters, nature encounters, what I love about entering the world of this book is that the animals in nature, they feel like characters that are on the same level as you, the human protagonist. And I really feel the, the spirit of the animals, the different playful, somber, frightening personas of the different animals, whether it's the bluebird, the, the, the wolf, the the horse, the buffalo, frog. I'm curious how, and, and this is, I think, also a perspective that so many of our lineages must have once had. Um, and I'm thinking of indigenous traditions and also so many um, traditions that so many of us had where animals spoke to us in dreams and animal characters show up in mythologies. So, I'm just curious if this worldview of having reverence for animal nature, how did that, how did that come about for you? Hmm. Yeah, thank you, Yumi. That's a great question. You know, it wasn't a big part of my worldview until this story began to unfold in my life. And I think I was su as surprised as anybody by the way that some of the animal encounters, for example, moose, a moose um, showing up at the road uh, to the painter's funeral and looking people in the eye in the middle of the road. Um, those kind of encounters also with dragonfly and then with bluebird here in the my first day in the desert were so astonishing that it was hard to believe that the animals were anything but messengers um, or spirits appearing in animal form. And so I think that my, my sense of animals as, as allies, as friends, as more than they appear to be really took shape um, in through this experience. And that's part of why I took pictures of them when these incidents happened, because it was so astonishing and I wanted to um, record it and understand it. And now I feel like my relationship to animals is completely different than perhaps it was 10 years ago um, in the sense that, you know, during this, that, this recent period of my life, I, I began to then start looking to the animals for signs, whether it was um, for signals of um, my own transformation 
or whether it was messages from the other side. And I quickly learned that animals really are, they're, they exist in this, that liminal space between the present that we exist, that we're, you know, in with our conscious minds, but they are also navigating the space between here and the other side. And so, you know, um, at a time when I think, you know, death really opened me up to quote unquote, the other side and the animals seem to be, to exist there too. And so they were really my friends and allies um, and messengers that were helping me navigate um, the liminal space that I found myself in after the painter died. And they were such a gift. I, they were such a gift and continue to be. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that really struck me with reading the spring is that in addition to the painter's early death, there are so many incidents of life and death through your animal encounters. And they come up so, they're described so vividly, like it could be something as mundane as seeing the body of a dragonfly on the floor, seeing snake skin, and a goat being born, the news of your neighbor's alpaca baby dying. And I just really felt that constant churn of life and death through these animal stories. And it also made me think how as humans in this modern Western society, we're so detached from death and denial of death. We, off the top of my head, I, I'm thinking the, the right of acknowledging death, there's a funeral and then after that, you're sort of expected to process on your own and go back to work and not really think about it. And so, it seems like with the memoir, you were co-creating with the universe a way to grieve because our modern society does not give us the, the tools, the resources, the communal, the communal connection to, to grieve collectively. And so I wanted to hear your thoughts on your relationship to the grieving process, how that was informed by the the animal encounters and and also I guess a two-part question as we start to leave the pandemic in a year when so many people were dying so many lives were lost I am just curious about your thoughts on how we can become better at grieving yeah thank you Yumi um <clears throat> so you know, I think that this, my grief process, you know, was by perhaps seeing, you know, a lost loved one, a, perhaps appearing as a bluebird or a dragonfly or a moose, there was um, great comfort. And I think that that's one thing that 
you know, you you find when you lose somebody that their absence is so unbearable. Um, but feeling, I felt very comforted by the sense that they're still around. They just aren't appearing in the same form as they used to. And, um, and then also, you know, as the story goes on and, you know, I encounter many births and deaths with the animals, it felt like it was also a tale about impermanence and, you know, life goes on, we transform, we, we're born, we die, we do it all over again. And the animals really were continuing to reveal that to me. And also revealing that it, you know, also grief is, is part of animals' lives too. Like the mother alpaca calling out for her baby. Um, and, you know, really, I think it's so important to honor that and to honor that it, it's a process that goes on for years. It isn't over after a week and um, that you continue to develop new ways of sort of being with that impermanence and finding even joy in being present with it. In terms of how, you know, I think that we can, you know, find new ways to think about grief and to talk about grief in this, um, as we emerge from the pandemic, I, you know, I I've, was really hoping this would be an opportunity in our culture to um, be able to talk about death and grief in more openly and um, to acknowledge it as an ever in some ways an everyday part of people's lives. Um, just by the fact that so many more people I think are having to go through this experience in a, in a way that perhaps isn't quote unquote timely. Um, and, you know, I hope, I, I think it's a real opportunity and I, I think that we will all be better for it the more that we can integrate these conversations in across our dinner tables um, on the hikes that we go on. And, uh, you know, I, I would hope that it isn't just something that we talk about only, only when we're about to go to a funeral. Um, yeah, thank you. So beautifully said. I wanted to switch gears a little bit because I'm so curious as to the creative and deliberate decisions you made with the form of your book. So I'm really curious about your literary influences and, and other things that inspire you to take on the story in this more poetic, unconventional route of speaking about an autobiographical incident. Yeah, thank you. I would say that some of my big, the big influences, people that I was reading at the time that I was writing this, um, were also authors that, you know, mix genres and that also integrate dreams into their work. And 
those authors include Joy Harjo, Maxine Hong Kingston, Patty Smith, Annie Dillard. Um, they're all authors that I think sort of uh, write in, in the liminal spaces uh, with a real deft, <laughs> deft ability um, with the craft um, and also with their own imaginations. And I have deep reverence for all of them as well as the many other books and authors that I've read over well over my lifetime, but especially over the last um, several years. Yeah, so I certainly I hope um, that this book is a new addition to, you know, a way that we can think of memoir as more than just, um, you know, sort of a, a document of exactly what happened during some, a period of somebody's life, but um, an investigation through dreams. I also wanted to know, with regards to the form of your book, it, it's just so, I, I keep saying the word distilled <laughs> because that's, that's just how I feel with the, the way you condense the, the incidents of this book into a really specific frequency. And it really does feel like being drawn into this dreamlike world where I not only feel that the animal encounters really vividly in a visceral way, I also really feel in a visceral way the dreams that you have. And I, I'm struck by the ways you shapeshift in your dreams. One of my favorite dream incidents was the one where, I wanna say it was a wildcat, where you take on the wildcat's fur and you, you feel the wildcat's head over your face like a hat and you feel your hands getting into the paws and another one where a bear bites into your neck and you're bleeding and your friend wants to stop this inevitable death but you and your dream logic you know that no this death is coming and so I'm really curious if it was difficult to decide what went into the story what didn't um, if there was a process in deciding what details stayed and what details were not included in the final, the final form. Yeah. Um, yeah, as far as the, the final form and the dreams, you know, I, I, the ones that stayed in were the ones that really drove the narrative. Um, so the dream I had of, of you know, walking up a, a snowy steep hill and needing the wildcat to lend me her fur coat so I could go on on the path. Um, you know, that was definitely an integral turning point in the narrative, right? A dream that happened um, around the time that I decided to leave Montana where the first half of the book happened and decide to go to the desert where I start to 
unfurl and um, the wildcat was dream was part of that turning point. Um, and so, and the same with the bear dream, you know, that was also an indicator of this shift where I was going through, you know, my own, my own death, there was a lot of fear. Um, and so all the dreams in the story, in the book really have, I mean, they're dreams that I actually dreamt and they felt like they were as relevant as the encounters that were happening in my waking life with horse um, and with snake and that they were all creating the narrative. So really in distilling this fable, it was, I kept the animal stories that were, seemed to create the narrative of the fable, um, which I didn't know until, you know, I didn't know what the end of the fable would be until I had the final dream after I'd then, you know, moved out of the desert and I had a dream that snake, I was holding snake and let her go in, into a field of um, tilled soil. And I knew when I had that dream that that was the end of the book and that that was the end of the fable, that it didn't have a, there wasn't some fireworks moment where <laughs> everything is better again, but um, more of a, I think, feminist um, moment where you become more deeply yourself and at home in the world. And that was what that dream taught me. What I love about, well, so many things to love about this book. I, I really appreciated the, the mythology of you, the human character, having to go through these trials and tribulations and journeys into the unknown and have meeting your animal allies, friends, messengers, and coming out to the other side not in this neat and tidy resolution, but having deeper relationship with nature and animals, having deeper relationship to self and being far more connected to the circular spiral path that we're all on with death and birth and transformation and constant shedding of old identities and Birthing a new identity is informed. So I am very curious what is incubating right now in your current journey? What what is um what are some things on the horizon for this next this this new um cycle of adventure that <laughs> is coming up? Yeah. Yeah, it's um well, one thing that I've been working on very recently is uh, co-creating some music inspired by the book um, because it has sort of a mythical quality, but also a very lyrical poetic quality. Um, it lends itself very well to, I, I think, um, performative and performative uh, 
work. And so working on music and, you know, hoping to maybe someday see other iterations of the book as well that I'd like to be part of. And I've also been just this past year distilling parts of my day-to-day -day pandemic life <laughs> in a pandemic chronicle and, you know, looking at the, some of the themes that really arose, so particularly last fall in terms of, um, you know, violence and our desire for connection and um, our sense of both alienation um, and how that arises actually out of our need to just be held and be touched. And um, so I'm, you know, we'll see where that goes, but um, there are a lot of interesting projects brewing right now and um, it feels like a very fertile time. So just really excited to get this book into the hands of people and let people especially at this time with the pandemic, um, you know, I think it is a good time to have new narratives about grief. And I hope that this book um, becomes sort of a touch point for that. I have one last question. And I truly believe, especially after reading this book that we can all benefit from connecting from connecting more deeply with our animal and nature um i'm trying to think of the right word allies friends must i guess it's all of the above the the other living beings whether they're plants animals etc that we coexist with I, i'm curious for readers who want to have a greater relationship with animals, nature, non-human entities, what's a good place for them to start? <laughs> I think that a good place to start is paying attention. That's how I started. Um, even the, the you know, one of the first stories in the book where the painter and I encounter an owl, that was how we started telling animal stories to our, to each other was um, our, when we saw our first animal or our first owl in the forest, we were so taken by it and knew that maybe there was, you know, a meaning there that we could derive. Um, and so I would say start paying attention and asking questions and, you know, maybe talking to the animals in your lives, whether um, they're your, your pets or animals that you encounter in the wild and um, think about how, how they might be telling you a story. Um, sometimes I read poetry to my pet rabbits and that's a nice way for us to interact. I can tell that they like certain, certain poets so they really light up around certain poets and that's always cool to um, see. So I think there's just so much more there with animals than I, I think we, we can even begin to understand. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it makes living a much, such a, a beautiful, beautiful experience. 
Thank you so much, Annie, for speaking to me and the Skylight Book listeners. I really appreciated this conversation with you. Thank you. I really appreciated this conversation with you too, Yumi. I'm so glad that we met all those years ago in the, here in the desert. And um, I remember showing you a very early copy of this book at that time. And um, it's so cool to now be here with you all these years later today. And thank you, Natalie from Skylight. Uh, what an honor to be able to be on your excellent podcast. And Skylight is definitely my home bookstore in Southern California. Uh, so I'm looking forward to coming back now that you, you're all open again. We're so excited to have you back and to be able to have you in the store and have spring sitting on our shelves. Uh, thank you both so much for this conversation that definitely felt like it was taking place in the liminal space. I could hear the birds chirping outside my window and I was listening to the animals while listening to you both. And it was a very beautiful, timely conversation that I'm very grateful we were able to have. And before we close up, I did want to ask you one question because so much of the work and the, the art and the content that we have had available to us throughout this pandemic has, it has taken energy from us a lot of it. It has required us to give energy to something. And so I wanted to see if there was anything that either of you wanted to uplift anyone's work or art or um, writing, anything that you came across during this weird time that filled you up and gave you something rather than took something away from you. Uh, I'll go first, uh, partly because I just finished writing an essay that will be published in the Rumpus on May 21st about books to read when you're visited on in um, while you're grieving. And the last book that I read uh, in preparation for that essay was Obit by Victoria Chang. And I loved that collection. It was oh, so beautiful. Yeah, just stunning. And I've just started reading it again because um, it's so rich. So that that's my, that's who I'd like to lift today. I recently finished after a billion friends kept telling me to read this book, Minor Feelings in Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hogg. It was such a timely book to read during the time of rising anti-Asian hate and an endless string of horrific incidents against the Asian Pacific Islander American community. This book felt like such a solve during these really difficult times. So I'm really grateful for Kathy Park Hong. And another thing that I want to mention is that the author mentioned in the book that she wrote this book as a dare to herself to, to write a book of such a difficult topic. So it really makes me think of the dares we can give ourselves <laughs> to, to become better humans, braver artists, and to 
show up with more courage and conviction in our day-to-day lives. Thank you both so much for sharing those. And Annie, you mentioned you have a essay coming out in The Rumpus. Is there anything else either of you want to let us know you're, you've got coming up? Anything you want to share? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> tomorrow, Wednesday, I will have an excerpt of the spring published in Alta Journal online. So check that out if you want to read another section. Uh, it's the wolf section, one of my favorites. <laughs> and yeah, pub date is May 11th and I'm going to have a town hall Seattle virtual reading um, in conversation with Francis McHugh on May 13th. And then I will have a desert launch party here in Joshua Tree or launch event <laughs> slash probably feel like a party for me um, on May 21st. So go to my website, anniecanole.com and find out more. On my end, I will be facilitating several workshops this month and you can find all the details for it on my Instagram, instagram.com slash Yumi Sakugawa. I'm facilitating two workshops on the creative artist guide to getting better at money and inviting cash flow on May 16th and May 23rd. And I'm also co-facilitating a movement meditation workshop on transmuting rage into creativity and power on May 30th. Thank you both so much. So many great things to look forward to from you both. Thank you again to Annie for sharing the spring with us and Yumi for your thoughtful and deep heartfelt questions. It was such a lovely conversation. Today's guests, once again, were Annie Canole and Yumi Sakugawa. You can order Annie's beautiful new book, The Spring, as well as all of Yumi's fabulous titles at www.skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.